It's the Lord's day. It's not your day. It's his day. Right? And he only wants to uh, bless his children on this day. And so what, what a glory that we can come together and focus our minds and our hearts upon him, our good father who gives us good gifts. Let's begin with prayer, and then we're going to uh, look at the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 2. You should have picked up uh, one of the handouts that was on the, the stand, music stand, outside the door. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this day. We thank you for your mercies that are new every morning. We thank you for... Uh, the Lord's Day, we thank you that we can, uh, that you have, you have given us this day and called us to rest, demanded that we rest. Uh, and that's good for our hearts, it's good for our souls. Father, it's good for our bodies. And Lord, thank you uh, that you have given this to us. Lord, we ask your richest, richest blessings upon this day that you would feed us and strengthen us, that you would prepare us to be uh, ambassadors for your Son throughout this week until we return again by your will next week. Lord, so uh, teach us and train us and build us up. May every one of our thoughts and meditations be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So let's start with Scripture. Where do we go in Scripture for the doctrine of the Trinity? If somebody said to you, you worship three gods, not one, where would you take them in the Scriptures? John 14. What is John 14? Okay. D- does that do it for you? Is that okay? Okay. Yeah. All right. Now you're hitting home runs. Okay. So you'd open up with John 14. You'd make a trip quickly to Matthew 28. You'd go to. Uh, Genesis 1, uh, let us make man in our image, right? The plural there is, is, is pregnant with meaning. Um, well, I would go to, I mean, you can go to, to many places. Jesus talking about he and the Father being one, right? Shows that at least the Father and the Son are a unity. And um, Matthew 28 to me is is uh, the clearest uh, for a couple reasons. And so, um, what, is, what, am, what am I referring to in Matthew 28? What's the verse? Who? That's not it. You started halfway through it. <laughs> she hasn't had coffee yet. Um, Matthew 28. Go therefore... And make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the 
Names? Name of what? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, that singular there is very important, right? The name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so it is, it is one, it is, uh, He is a unity, though three what? Persons. Okay? One essence, three persons. And that is the confession of the Christian church down through the ages. Heretics have come along and denied the doctrine of the Trinity, right? And denying the doctrine of the Trinity automatically qualifies you into the hall of fame of heretics, okay? Um, there, there are many ways that the doctrine of the Trinity has been denied. Sometimes it's to... It's to deny that one or two of the members or the persons of the Trinity are, you know, it's to deny that they're God. And so the Arians denied that Jesus was eternal God. They said that there was uh, a time when he was not. And so he is essentially a created being on the order of, of mankind. This, the Sibelians, the modalists, it's just said that God manifested himself in three different ways through three different epochs, right? He was God the Father, and then God the Son, and then God the Spirit in these different modes. That's a denial of the Trinity. Um, we maintain that God is one essence, three persons, eternally. So, do we worship three gods? No, we worship one God, and that is entirely essential one god in three persons one god who is a unity in complexity right there's there's unity and there's distinction there's oneness and persons and and so we'll get into that a little bit here but first we deal with uh, theology proper who is god and that's where chapter two of the, the confession begins. And there's a way that the confession splits, splits up the attributes of God when they uh, teach this. Uh, and that, that is between two different kinds of attributes of God. That would be the communicable and incommunicable attributes of God. Now, what does that mean? If something is incommunicable, what does that mean? And that car is shining right in my face. Go ahead. Okay, some, some attribute of God that's unique to him that he does not share with anyone else, any of his creatures, okay? That would be incommunicable. And so the communicable attributes would obviously be those that he shares with his creatures, and uh, we reflect as his image the, that those attributes. And so let's read chapter 1, uh, or section 1 of chapter 2. And you've got it there on your sheet with all the scripture proofs. There is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, 
eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory. Most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal, most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. So, not much there (laughs) to chew on, right? Not much there. Um, How to go through this. I mean, so you, you begin to see the distinction between the communicable and incommunicable uh, attributes of God, and that's just a way for us to wrap our heads around it. But, but even the communicable attributes of God, he is those things in, in a quality and quantity that we are never going to be, right? Um, his, his perfection in all these attributes sets him apart from uh, a a mere creature. And so uh, that's one point that needs to be made. But um, let's just walk through some of these. There is but only one only living and true God, right? He is a being. He is living. He is uh, animate, right? He he is um, and, and a true God. There are many false gods, uh, small g, right? False gods that, um, that many people will worship, and yet there's only one true God as, as defined by Scripture, right? Many false gods get their definitions from other places, not from Scripture, but the one true God laid out who he was in an inspired word, And so the source of our knowledge of God is God himself who inspired uh, this book that we go to for um, revelation, information, um, teaching, doctrine about God. And so he's living and true who is infinite in being and perfection. Now, again, a lot of these we just can't even begin to wrap our heads around infinite in being and perfection. Uh, infinite in being. The, this, one of the things that I began to think about, and they get into it somewhere else, but I'll just, since I'm thinking about it, share it now, is God hears, but he hears without ears. I mean, think about that. He does not have ears. He doesn't have a body like men. He hears, but somehow... He does it immediately, not immediately, like we do, right? We have ears, and there are little tiny cilia on our ears, and they get stimulated, and we hear it, and, and all these things. All these immediate parts um, are how we hear, and that's how he made us to work. But God somehow hears immediately, right? He, there's nothing in between. There's no... 
uh, there aren't sensations with which he perceives things. He hears. <laughs> and, and so, I mean, you begin to think through that and, and um, your mind gets boggled. Now, why does Scripture say that God, you know, God has hands and God has ears and God listens and God hears? Why does, why does it do that? Because, because uh, you would never be able to figure out or relate to, I mean, those are anthropomorphisms. The only way we can understand things is by what we know. Right? So that's God lisping to us. That's God condescending to describe himself using uh, our language, our experience, so that we can understand him. But God does, but God hears, and God, God exists and is before anything else exists. His being is. And it just does not compute. Right? It doesn't compute. It's mystery, right? It, it is difficult for us to, to comprehend that. But he exists outside of, of space and time. He is, right? And uh, yet being created beings, we're sort of tied to the creation, right? It's, we're, we're dirt. We're dust. He is not. He is. So let's pray. I'm done. <laughs> That's all I got. Anything beyond that? Somebody had their hand up, I thought. Did no, okay. You did. Okay. Lay it on me. There are certain people. Athanasian. Beast, it's long, yep. Well, I mean, if we're not, we're heretics. I mean, there's no negotiating that. Yeah, well, there's the, that's a fundamental doctrine of the Trinity. That they're, yeah, I mean, the catechisms, yeah, the catechism says that, what is the catechism on the Trinity? Guys, God is equal in power and glory, Right? The three persons of the Trinity are equal in power and glory. Okay? It's there in the Westminster. It's there in this section, right? Um, and so, yeah, the, there's a, uh, what, one of, what one member of the Trinity does, all the members of the Trinity are doing, right? There's, um, there's yeah, that, that is very important. Although, I will say this, that uh, in different eras of the church, the, the unity has been emphasized, and in different areas of the church, the distinctions between the persons have been emphasized. We live in an era of the church where uh, the philosophical unity of the, th the, the persons is emphasized. 
to the exclusion of discussing the distinctions between the three. Okay? That is the tendency in scholarship right now. I mean, Renton, you would agree, right? And so, um, and so in response to that, you know, um, I think we need to do due diligence on the other side and talk about uh, the, the distinctions between the persons, right, to, uh, to weigh these things out. Because you can go off the rails on either side. I mean, you can, you can so emphasize the distinctions that you, 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 you have three gods, right? Um, and you can so emphasize the unity that you deny any distinctions between the persons. And so there is a sweet spot in talking about Trinitarian theology, but it's very hard to maintain it because, because you can't comprehend this. We can talk in this direction and then correct to this direction and then correct here and then hope that it comes out without you saying anything heretical about this God who is incomprehensible, right? So I guess that's a long answer to your short question. We're trying to understand. Yeah, I mean, trying to understand just, yeah, trying to, I mean, we've come up with all kinds of analogies to try to understand three and one and one and three. And the analogies just don't completely make sense of, of the God who is those things infinitely and perfectly and immensely and eternally, right? So, anyway, let's keep going. Um, he's infinite in being in perfection, a most pure spirit, right? Um, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. God is a spirit. That means that God does not have a body like man, okay? That's what the children's catechism says. God is a spirit. Jesus has a body, and how that body fits into the, the, the one triune God, we will find out one day. Uh, but, but for now, it is an incomprehensible uh, union of, of body and spirit. Speaking of God the Father properly, we would say God is a spirit, right? He does not have a body. He is, therefore, omnipresent. Right? He's not bound by, by a body. He is everywhere present. He is everywhere in the entire universe and all of his creation equally present at every point. I mean, that's the incredible immensity of God. He is equally here. He's equal in Duluth, Minnesota and Saudi Arabia and in the, the you know, Orion's Belt and a black hole in the middle of some galaxy, you know, seven trillion light years away. Equally present, fully present, and equally present 
there. He's invisible, can't be seen. He doesn't have a body. He's without body, parts or passions, right? He's without body, we understand that. He's without parts. He's not a division, a composite. He's not a, a, a machine that has a carburetor and then has the, the uh, fuel pump. Okay, I'm going to show my ignorance of my engine. Um, you know, the head gasket and all those things. Um, and he's without passions, right? And this one always causes people to stumble. And um, the, the proof, what's the proof text here? It's Acts 14, 11. And when the people saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in the speech of uh, Lycaonia, the gods are come down to us in the likeness of men and saying, sirs, why do these... Why do ye these things? We are also men of like passions with you and preach unto you that ye should turn from these vanities unto the living God which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein. And so that passage is saying that we as men have passions. God does not have those passions. What does that mean? What does it mean? It means that God is heartless and un uncaring, right? Is that what it means? Oh, what do you mean? I, we talked about it the other day, so. I clarified it perfectly, but he's... <laughs> thought. Okay. I think it does. Yeah, Sandy. Okay. Okay. Yeah. You want to give it a shot? He can't deny himself, you know, and so, um, so, I mean, there are ways in which we could, we could talk about boundaries, but as far as this being, yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. Well, back to passions, passions, um, passions would be all those times, I think, when, when uh, you lose control. And you are so governed by outside influences that you are at the mercy of something else. Whatever that thing may be, it has control of you and it is defining exactly what you are going to do next. And usually it means shouting at your children or something along those lines, right? Or f flicking somebody off in the vehicle that just cuts you off, right? God is never overcome by something that controls him because to do that, um, that would mean God would be ungodded and there would be some influence, there would be some stimulus that, that transcended his power and made him submit to it. 
And so, in that sense, there's a complete distinction. There is no surprises with God. There is no higher, um, there's no higher knowledge. There's no more complacency than what God has. He's completely complacent. Okay? And so, I think that's what they're getting at here. And it is, it is actually a, a very helpful um, doctrine in that it, it, keeps, it keeps us from the temptation that we all have to diminish God by making him like us. And that's what open theism, that was, you know, 20 years ago, open theism was a, was a, uh, a bunch of heretics who um, got published by, like, Zondervan and other companies, um, who, and they said, well, God, you know, God must open himself up. It, it, it was all about love, right? God must take chances because love always involves chances. And so he must genuinely open himself up to things he doesn't know are going to end one way or the other. And so they denied that he had middle knowledge, that he had, had um, a, a, a full uh, that he comprehended all of history in a, in a moment rather than a series of events, right? They denied him these classic understandings as derived from Scripture, and it's heretical, right? It is to fashion God in the image of man. And, uh, and that was to completely destroy the God of Scripture, and yet, why did they do it? They did it because they needed a touchy-feely sort of God that, that you know, because love is risky and take chances. And, and we have to independently choose God or we're not loving Him. Blah. I mean, it has no resemblance to Scripture at all. None. And yet, it has a lot of resemblance to what our culture would say about love and what it is and what it isn't. So that's passions. I knew we'd spend a little bit of time there. So um, immutable, what does that mean? Unchanging. Think about that. That should be one of the most pleasing, satisfying doctrines that you come across. God has never changed. He never had to, he's never had to, to uh, correct. He's always been perfect. He's never sinned. Everything he's done has been perfectly holy all the time, always, right? And, and that is a glorious doctrine. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That should give you great peace, right? He's immutable, immense, right? He is immense, comprehending uh, all knowledge, right? What's the proof text here? But God, uh, first couple of them. Uh, Jeremiah 23, 23, Am I a God at hand, saith the Lord, and not a God afar off? Can any hide himself in secret places that I shall not see him, saith the Lord? Do not I fill heaven and earth, saith the Lord. Everywhere present, everywhere fully present, immense. Eternal. What does eternal mean? Without beginning, without ends. That is incomprehensible to us. It is impossible to think of something not having a beginning. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it is an incomprehensible uh, concept. We, we sort of get an inkling of what it means um, because of the pa- long passage of time, but that doesn't even begin to deal with eternity, which is, which is always existing outside of time, always being there, no beginning. What does it mean that something doesn't have a beginning? Um, teach me that, philosophers. Right, eternal, incomprehensible. Proof text here, Psalm 145.3. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Does that mean he, um, does that mean he can't be known? Right. It, he, he reveals himself to us. He lisps. He, he condescends. He gives us the word of God and and does so in a way that's comprehensible um, and, and shows us things about himself. But his glory, his being, his perfection is, is fully incomprehensible and will be even with redeemed minds. There will still be a distinction between creator and creature even when we're in the Lord's presence, fully sanctified and, and thinking godly thoughts only and all the time. There will still be a distinction, and he will be incomprehensible, always, though more fully known. Um, We will know him. He's almighty, powerful, right? He's most wise, meaning there's no other higher wise one than him. Most holy means he's without sin, unblemished, the um, completely without taint, uh, most free, most free. Uh, there is not a free being in all of his creation, uh, but he is most free. And so, what does that mean? He's free. Okay. Yeah. Mhm. Mhm. Can he? He can't not. Yeah, he can't not. Yeah, he's free. What does God get to do? What does God get to do? Whatever he wants. That's the answer. All is holy will. Right? God can do, one of the Psalms says, God can do whatever he wants. And, and it will be perfect. It will be righteous. It will be uninfluenced, um, holy perfection. He's free. He is free. We are not. We don't do, we have, we have no freedom. Right? We, we only begin to have some freedom when we're set free in Jesus Christ. But before that, we are in bondage completely to what? Sin. That's only and ever all that we do outside of Christ. True. Yeah, 
You look like your brain just shorted out. Right. Um, you can be a man, though, if you want, apparently. Sure. Right, that would be to deny his holiness. That would be to deny that his, his perfect righteousness. He's, um, he can't sin. Um, so most free, most absolute... Uh, I mean, what does that mean? What's the, what's the text they go to here? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, thou shalt, uh, thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am has sent me unto you. I am that I am. The, the eternality the, the, um, uh, of God, the, the absoluteness. He is always there and was and is. He just is uh, eternally. Um, working all things, cont- uh, whoops, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable, unchangeable, and most righteous, perfectly holy will. He is working, right? All things according to one will by which he has laid out all the things that will ever come to pass. Laid it out. And it's perfectly, it's, it's, it all is so that he might be glorified above all things. Now that is a, that is a, that's a difficult doctrine. Because we look around and we see... Um, well, first of all, we look into our own hearts and we feel our sin and we sin. And we look around the world, right, and things are not going exactly how we would lay them out. I mean, uh, we would make different choices if we had the power uh, and had limited knowledge like we have now. But we trust that God, because of his unlimited wisdom, his, his perfection, his being, his character, that he knows what he's doing. And even though sin is in the world, even sin is being worked toward his own glory in the end. I mean, at the very least, the presence of sin in the world allows the attributes of God to be demonstrated to, to the world and to us, and to the church, and uh, will eternally, in the presence of hell, and the, the punishment will be an eternal expression of the perfect and holy wrath of God. And uh, all those things are to the, to the end of his own glory. Now this is something, there's no way we get through all this today. I mean, what time is it? Oh, brother. Um, we're doing a chapter a week. I'm not breaking from that. Um, you have to study on your own. Uh, I forgot what I was going to say. Oh, th- this whole, that all things work for his own glory, again, is so diminishing of mankind. That's what I love and you should love about the scriptures. Every time you go read the scriptures, you should feel like, okay. I am pathetic. 
I am nothing, I am little. And then you should say, and God is immense and powerful and glorious and, and incomprehensible and all these things. And if you're going away from Scripture and you're like, you're saying, you know, I'm not half bad. I'm doing pretty well. This is good. Um, I, I do think people respect me and, and honor me. Well, you may be approaching Scripture wrong. Right? You might be approaching Scripture wrong, and especially as you look at this, and you go to Ephesians 1 where it says the same thing, that all things are working to the praise of His glory. You're just, you're just a tiny, tiny little cog in that wheel. God is going to glorify Himself. God is. That is the end of all things. That is the end of all things. Right? And you're just a little cog in that wheel. But how many people do you know, and perhaps it's yourself, because it probably is, think that the world revolves around you? Right? Every time our pride gets bent out of shape, that's what we're essentially saying. We're saying, the world revolves around me, and not even around God. And this is the way that I will have it. And that's pathetic. It's a sin that we all commit. It's very pathetic. Get this into your head. Drill this into your head that God's glory is what is ultimate. That's what everything is driving toward. That's, that's why, that's why uh, Putin invaded Ukraine. Right? That's why the stock market went down so and so on this such and such a day. Right? That's why that car wreck happened. Right? That's why so-and-so died on such and such an hour after having su- suffered for this many months. Um, that's why you passed the bar. Right? I mean, everything, everything is in that, that trajectory, and it has to do about God, not you. And then we get this, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. The rewarder of them that diligently seek him and withal, what does withal mean? Does anybody know what that means? Somebody Google that. Come on, Google it. You're already all on your phones right now anyway, not listening to me. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. This should be done by now. What? No, W-I-T-H-A-L. Oh, brother. In addition to besides, okay, thank you. Um, In addition to being... Okay, so he's all those things. He's, he's gracious, he forgives sinner, in addition to being one who hates sin, right? And is wrathful against sin. He loves and he's wrathful in addition to that, you know? And so he's most just terrible in his judgments. And that means, in terrible means, um, means uh, not ethically bad, like we use the word terrible, but 
It's, it's how they used to use the word awful, like full of awe, right? What's that? Terrifying, Terrifying right? Yeah, inducing of, of awe, respect, and terror. Um, terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. And that last statement, will, no, will by no means clear the guilty, is a very swift summary of the necessity of the death of Jesus Christ, right? That is the only way that there is, is true justice, is by the death of His Son, who became the guilty one for your sin, right? There was no other means by which to do that. It would have been, it would have been wrong for God to say, forgiven, and not to have poured out His wrath for those sins. Your sins are not just forgiven in Jesus, right? Your sins were punished in Jesus. Punished. The wrath of God fell upon Jesus' shoulders and He agonized for you. For your specific sins. For that sin you committed last Tuesday night. Right? God punished His Son in your place. It's not merely that God has, has um, you know, it, it, it's, it's not merely atonement, it's, it's propitiation. And so there's, there's so much depth there. Alright, so um, let's go through the last two sections in two and a half minutes. God has all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of Himself. Right? He, he is, he, there, there's nothing, um, there's no, uh, like, logic that transcends God of which it informs him and he takes his marching orders from. There's no concept, there's no power, there's no person from which he derives his, his, um, glory, his life, right? He, he, he has it all with, of himself. And is alone in and unto himself all sufficient, not standing in need of any of his creatures which he has made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his glory in, by, unto, and upon them. Now, again, that diminishes us a little bit. You know, you, you may think that you're, you're a gift to God, but what this is saying is like, well, whatever gift you are to God, God gave you that gift so that he himself might receive the glory. You're just a means to his own end. You know? I mean, it is completely, uh, wonderfully diminishing of man. And wonderfully exalting of God and his glory. That this is what this is the the glory of reformed theology, of Scripture's teaching, right? Of the doctrines of grace, is the diminishment of man and the ultimate uh, transcendence and glory of God. He is the alone foundation of all being, of whom, through whom, to whom are all things, and has most sovereign dominion over them, 
to do by them, for them, or upon them whatsoever he pleases. You can't say to God at the end of the ages, not fair. Not fair. God, you weren't taking into consideration, you know, because of your limited knowledge, you weren't taking into consideration my feelings at that point when you kicked me when I was down. And you pressed down even further, right? Or you waited to exalt me to the point where I had already accepted the other job. You know, in all these circumstances, right? And so, um, <laughs> he does whatever he pleases, and whatever, he, whatever pleases him is that which magnifies his glory, and you are caught up in that. In his sight, all things are open and manifest. There's nothing he doesn't know. There's no contingency he doesn't know. He knows the way that everything would fall out no matter what somebody, what some creature chose, every direction in every way. And he knows what's going to fall out because his will is not just a will of observation. It's a will that causes what's going to happen to happen. Right? It's not just observational. It's, it's, an, it's, a, it's a, an acted, uh, I don't even know how to say it. You, maybe you're getting what I'm saying or not. Uh, his knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature. There we go again. So as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain. Nothing is uncertain. He is most holy in all his counsels, in all his works, in all his commands. To him is due from angels and men and every other creature whatsoever worship, service, or obedience he is pleased to require of them. He gets to define the terms of his worship. And that is what we are made to do. Now, finally, they get to the Trinity. And it's just one small statement in the Westminster Confession on the Trinity. They don't... They don't um, they don't say a whole lot. In the unity of the Godhead, there are three persons of one substance, three one, right? Remember those words, persons and substance, they're important. Of one substance, power, and eternity. And then it talks about the, distinct, uh, the distinctions. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Father is of none. More distinctions. Father is first. The Father is of none. The Father is, is, okay? And Jesus is too, but begotten. Eternally begotten. Eternally, um, and, and this is very difficult to, to uh, wrap your heads around. That is a distinction of order, right? But not a distinction of, of being, of power, of substance, right? It is not a distinction of any of those things. It's a, and so, um, he is begotten, not proceeding, and the son, the son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit, then, is eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. And that statement has been controversial through the ages, right? The The Eastern Orthodox Church denies that doctrine that the, the uh, Spirit proceeds uh, from the Father. 
we say he proceeds from the Son. Am I getting that right? Father, yeah. And, and so, um, and so there, the three persons are one substance, right? What one does, they all do. They have equal power, equal dignity, equal glory. And yet, the Father is of none, the Son is begotten, and the Spirit proceeds. Those are distinctions. Those are important distinctions. And why are they important distinctions? Because God has been revealed as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And those attributes, those, those, those uh, names of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, do mean something, right? The Son is not the Father, the Father is not the Son, the Spirit is not the Son, the Spirit is not the Father, right? And yet the Father is a Father, the Son is a Son, the Spirit is the Spirit, right? And there's something about fatherhood and sonship that, that implies, ex- explicitly implies, order. Order within the Trinity, Right? Equality and order. <laughs> equality, absolute equality, and order together. And that is that that most people just want to run and shout and say, um, you're denying the Trinity by positing any sort of order in there. And so God becomes this philosophical concept of oneness rather than a Father, Son, and Spirit, right? That relate to one another and are one, right? You want to suck the, the order out of the Trinity. You're sucking away the names and the, the actual ontology of fatherhood, sonship, and spirithood, right? Uh, I mean, huge, hugely important um, concept. But we have to be done, so I'm not going to answer any questions about that. (laughs) I've said what I could say. Let's pray. Lord, we honor you. We glorify you. What a glorious God we serve. Lord, to know you is the pleasure of our hearts. To study you and to uh, just begin to, to plumb the depths, Lord, by the the work of the Holy Spirit in us who knows you fully. Lord, what joy there is in that. I pray that we would continue to delight in you and study you and find our our satisfaction in you and we would step back and be in awe that we would see you as awful. And Lord, um, I pray that you would um, forgive us for such selfish and man-centered and weak thoughts of you. Lord, we pray that uh, you might mature us and that we would be godly in our meditations. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.